Hello, and welcome to a special Hope podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Brody, and today I'd like to welcome to the show my friend, John Felligeller. John and I met at Inclusion Fusion Live in 2018, and we had the opportunity to meet up again at the Wonderfully Made Conference in Kansas City this past fall. And we will both be presenting again at Inclusion Fusion Live's second annual conference, April 5th through 6th, at Bay Village Presbyterian Church in Bay Village, Ohio. John and I ended up on the same plane headed home from our last conference, and that was where I first suggested the idea for this podcast, which he enthusiastically supported. He was actually the very first person to sign up as a guest, and my very first interview as well. Before we get to our conversation, I'd like to tell you a little bit about John. He's got some great stories and has lots of encouragement to offer, so I think you'll enjoy listening to him. John Felligeller has spent over 15 years in education, working with children from infants to middle school, serving in a variety of roles, including teacher, mentor teacher, and school director. John has a passion for public speaking and adult-slash-parent education, and has conducted several curriculum workshops at previous schools. John is also very involved in his church community, having served on fundraiser teams as a ministry leader and, of course, as a Sunday school teacher. John lives in Northbrook, Illinois, with his wife Elizabeth and his son Christopher, who has autism, and is currently an elementary teacher at a charter school in Chicago, Illinois. He is a regular contributor to Key Ministries' special needs parenting blog, and is both a live presenter and on Key Ministries' Facebook page. He coordinates a special needs dads meetup in his community and works with several other local special needs organizations that serve both parents and children. So that's everything about John. Now let's get to the conversation. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Hey, Sarah, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm so glad that we're doing this. This is super exciting. Tell us about your family and your son's diagnosis. Sure. Well, I'd like to start out by saying that I have a a unique family situation, which I guess many of us special needs parents could probably say. Uh, We are, as I like to famously say, a family of onlys. So my wife and I are both only children, and my son is an only child, which uh, my understanding from many of the counselor friends I've talked to over the years, it's rare that two only children meet and marry, and then, of course, have an only child. Um, But in Mm. our case, I think that just kind of defines who we are in terms of some of the challenges we face. Um, My uh, beautiful wife, Elizabeth, uh, is a school teacher like myself. She teaches middle school uh, in a suburban school not far from where we live. Uh, I'm a teacher as well. I teach on the south side of Chicago in a charter school. Uh, My son is 11. Uh, Christopher uh, has autism. He is on the autism spectrum, and he is nonverbal. Uh, He does attend a public school. Uh, He is in an ELS, so an early life skills class. So he does spend some time in the mainstream class, but most of his time, um, he's in a separate environment uh, with some of his other uh, special needs friends. Um, When I said that our family was unique, um, I speak to, first of all, the fact that we are only children. And uh, sometimes the challenges that that creates is that, first of all, on the one hand, uh, we have no siblings. So that means less kids to actually focus on. Uh, But also, Mm -hmm. too, we're a very small family unit. We have some close relatives and family friends, but really, it's just kind of us. And when we look at uh, the everyday challenges, certainly those are things that uh, we we are able to meet. But long-term challenges are the things that we really look for further down the road in terms of what will his living situation be like? Where will he work? And who will take care of him when mom and dad are not there to take care of him? These are very real uh, situations. And 
challenges that families like ours face that are not typical right. uh, in, say, a regular family setting. And also what I would speak to is the fact that um, with a lot of families and, and certainly a lot of Christian families, when we speak to faith and, and faith-related issues, uh, most families, I think, would say that they really lean into their faith when talking about needing support and needing help and really helping to kind of push them down the road. Um, in our case, when we got our son's diagnosis and we um, really kind of started this road when he was about 18 months, when uh, the pediatrician noticed some things that weren't right, and we really didn't get a, a firm diagnosis until he was about three. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the, the challenges that we faced is that we did not have a strong spiritual foundation. Uh, when we mm -hmm. married, we came from a couple of different faith backgrounds. Um, we were, as uh, is a common phrase that, that's used in uh, in society today, spiritual, not religious. We had our own beliefs, and we certainly believed there was a God and all of that, but we didn't want to belong to an institution, a church, a temple, anything like that. Uh, that was just not our thing. And what we noticed is that when we started to face real challenges in life, uh, challenges that, you know, yes, go along with being a parent, but in terms of a special need parent, when we faced a large variety of financial challenges, uh, when I suffered a job loss, when my wife's job was in jeopardy, when our marriage began to stop working, when um, just the stresses of daily life just really kind of closed in on us. And what we really saw is that while we had some close friends and family around us, a lot of people really kind of ran out of answers for us. They really didn't know how right. to react. They didn't know how to support us. They may have liked to support us, but maybe their answer was something we didn't want to hear, like, maybe you guys are just meant to divorce. Maybe you're meant to just separate. Maybe there really is no hope for this marriage. And it really took strangers, to be quite honest with you, strangers in terms of uh, people that we met through a, a local church that we were referred to. I joined a, a men's Bible study group, and it was really the experience of having strangers who were Christian believers kind of step into our life, speak into our life, speak to us in terms of faith. And, and remind us about God's plan for our life and, and the vision that he has for us. And really that there is an abundance of hope, quite honestly. Right. And that's something that a lot of people struggle with, you know, finding, finding that community, finding people who will speak truth into your life. Um, so take me back to your son's diagnosis. How old was he? Um, what did you notice that led you to getting a diagnosis? Tell me more about that. Sure, absolutely. Well, um, the story that I like to always relate is, as I mentioned, when we went to our son's 18-month checkup, the pediatrician asked us a battery of questions. And one of the questions was, is he talking? Now, he had been making some noise. He had been uttering some things, um, but he didn't really speak or make anything intelligible. Now, of course, again, we both have a background in education, but early childhood is not our thing. So when we explained that, no, we weren't really hearing anything. She said to us famously, as I recall, um, what you need to do is go across the street to the uh, professional center, the medical building over there, and have him see a speech therapist. Now, and her exact words were, I don't know what they do, <laughs> but they will play with your child, make them talk, and everything will be fine. I said, great. So we went and we did that. And then when we found out that the speech therapist didn't fix him, we then had his hearing test. And then we consulted early intervention services through the state and went through another battery of testing and on and on. Right. When he was about three, that we saw a, um, a neuropsychologist that had been referred to us, um, that we got the diagnosis of at the time, what was called pervasive developmental disorder, which later just came under the autism umbrella entirely. So 
with that, we definitely had a diagnosis. But of course, one of the things that you learn is that you can be autistic in a variety of ways. And right. so our specific challenges were that he was mostly nonverbal as he is still today. He has, you know, he makes uh, some words, some utterances. Once in a while, he'll string a phrase together, but he mostly uses an iPad to communicate with an app on there, which has been quite successful for us and for him. Um, but as well as the fact that he has a variety of sensory needs, uh, he still has, you know, some motor issues in terms of uh, just physically kind of moving about. He's actually a very active kid and in, in great health, um, you know, but there are still some other uh, factors in play that do make it challenging for him to be in a mainstream classroom environment without that regular support. Gotcha. We had the same kind of experience with Sam when he was diagnosed. We went to the 18-month-old checkup. Is he talking? Uh, yes, he's scripting movie lines, but functional words, no. And I don't think I even really knew the word functional to use with that at the time. But we had to take him in for a hearing test and then right next door to the speech test. And that's when we discovered he was 50% delayed. So at 18 months old, he was operating on the level of a nine-month-old. A nine-month-old don't don't speak a lot. So um, that's kind of how we got into it. So very similar very similar experiences between the two of us. So how did you get started in professional blogging and writing? Did did your son's autism kind of play into that? Is that what drove you into it? Or was this something you already had on your heart before that? Tell me more about that. I would tell you all of the above. I, I think I've always wanted to be a writer since I was a child. I always felt that it was something I had a passion for, that I was good at, that other folks always told me that I was good at. But in terms of the type of writer I was going to be, you know, in my head, I always felt like, well, one day I'm going to write a book. But what I was going to write kind of changed over the years. Uh, when I was younger, I thought about writing a novel. Or then when I got into teaching, maybe I would write a book about education and different experiences. By the time of my son's diagnosis, and, and by the time we kind of wrapped ourselves around it and got to a place where our lives were on steady footing, and then we began to look at, okay, is there a way that now that we've kind of been fed is there a way to kind of give back to those families and people that we know also are going to need some help? Even though we hadn't been that far down the road, um, it's always something where as a special needs parent, you have such empathy for others that are kind of, you know, just kind of coming along that route. So yes. um, several years ago, I had a um, I had a meeting with an associate pastor at our old church who was a published author. And through a conversation we had, I mentioned that I would like to write a book about our experience as a special needs parents and specifically as a father. He said, great idea. I'm going to help you. I'm going to coach you, support you. Um, and we actually got to the place where I was almost ready to put together a book proposal. And then there was a falling out with him and the church um, due to some improprieties. And mm. he was forced to resign. Oh, my. Yeah, right. So with that, the crushing blow of, OK, that was tragic in and of itself, but then also what happens to my writing career? Well, I didn't want it to just be defined by one person or one situation. So I said, okay, what can I do? So we had a relationship with Johnny and Friends, which is a, a wonderful organization. And we had done some of their family retreats in Michigan. And I contacted their Chicago uh, land office because I knew that there were some folks that were attached to them um, that also were authors and doing some other things in terms of writing and such. And they provided me with basically a list of names and contact information. And they said, you know, feel free to reach out to whoever. And there was one woman that I wound up connecting with, which is um, actually Debbie Abs, who is also part of our key ministry writing team. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And she um, was actually part of a different organization at the time called Snap Ministries. Um, under the leadership of Barb Dietrich, who is also in leadership now with Key. 
her ministry actually merged with Key at the end of 2017. So I started out as a blog writer for Snappin Ministries because, as they said, look, we'd love to have another man and another father's perspective. And if you want to contribute, great. And I'd only really been doing it for, I tell you, not even six months when we merged with Key. And then when I came along with Key, of course, I continued the writing bug. And I think what I really saw very quickly was it was something that I enjoyed doing. Um, it was something that, despite our crazy schedule, I can still always find pockets of time where I can write and be creative. And it's a great outlet for me, uh, first of all, to help satisfy that desire to communicate my feelings, but then also to give back and try to connect with with folks. Because as, as you know, Sarah, we have experiences that are very specific to us as special needs families and parents and things that, you know, maybe quite honestly, a lot of typical parents or families might not understand it in exactly the same way. So being able to communicate those feelings and experiences is very powerful to me. And, right. and I always get excited about the opportunity to share that. And, and blogging is a great way because, you know, that that great book idea I know is is coming someday. But until I have time for that, I can always sit down and find 15 or 20 minutes to write a blog and and share that with the world. Right, which is fantastic. And he's speaking of Key Ministry. If you haven't heard of that yet, go to keyministry.org. Key Ministry has uh, tons of resources for both parents and for special needs ministry leaders. Um, lots of blog posts to, to read up on from all different kinds of people with different experiences and special needs. Um, again, ministry leaders. Uh, we provide training for ministry leaders as well. So if your church is looking to start a special needs ministry, definitely check Key Ministry out. They have fantastic resources. Um, so you mentioned writing a book, and we've talked about this some. And along with the experiences that you and, and Elizabeth have had in raising your son, uh, what influences or inspires you to write about your experiences? And I think I kind of know the answer. You've touched on this a little bit. It's something that we want to share with other parents, other families that we have been where you have been. We are walking the road that you are walking. But tell me from from your own point of view, what is it that inspires you to actually take the 15 or 20 minutes to sit down and write a blog post? So I, I think I begin by having an understanding of what separates special needs parents and families from typical ones. And one thing that I always like to communicate is that even the most mundane experiences, regardless of what they might be, actually can turn out to be quite a challenge for a special needs parent. That trip to the grocery store that a typical parent or family might just take for granted is something that can very easily turn into a serious disaster, quite honestly, very quickly. I think we've all had those experiences being a special needs parent of being out in public, whether it was running an errand or you know, needing to go somewhere to do something, and all of a sudden your child has a reaction to something or has an episode or has a moment. Right. They're just having difficulty being in that space. Now, sometimes it can be a quick fix and sometimes it's not. And the issue is, is that when you see the world reacting to you, right. reacting to your child and to the situation and thinking, hmm, what's wrong with that child? Or even worse, what's wrong with that parent that they can't manage that child? You know, I've had that experience. My wife has had that experience, as I'm sure you have as well. And so what I like to communicate then is, listen, some of the most powerful moments we have are those in which we can take those mundane experiences, those times when we would just love things to be normal. But even in the midst of those challenges, we still find hope and love and grace for our kids. And we still know that no matter what, they're still our child and we still love them. Um, I'll give you one quick example. I just actually did a, a blog post 
um, back in December for tea on the experience I had with my child being involved in the uh, church Christmas play. Now, the previous church we belonged to was great with us and great with our child. But as a parent, one thing that you always reflect on is, okay, we're going to do this thing for Christmas. The kids will all be up on stage. They're going to have their little choir. They'll do their little song and dance. Everything is great. Here's the thing. Some kids twitch and some kids move and maybe some kids forget their lines. My child always, though, needed to have, for example, a one-on-one -on -one next to him. Needed to have somebody there to help him stand up and not go down on his knees or, you know, go down to the ground. Someone that would help him to not wander off onto the stage and maybe touch some of the equipment. And in my heart, what I see is I'm so excited that my child belongs and is included. But do I really wish some days that my child could just stand there? could just stand there and just be part of that group, right. even for a few seconds. And even though sometimes you catch those glimpses, it's the most bittersweet thing when you can say, wow, he stood still for 10 seconds, but at the same time, you really wish he could maybe stand there for an entire song. And those are the types of we right. th that, that we wrestle with. I mean, there's certainly much bigger things in terms of the long-term picture, but it's always those day-to-day -day things. And that's what I really try to pick out and find in my writing. What are those day-to-day -day things? What are those things that emotionally might strike you and maybe you don't even have time to process them because life is so crazy but sit for a moment and sit with that what does that make you feel how do you react to that and more importantly ultimately is what can you do with those feelings what can what can help you to push that along and say you know what despite everything else i have hope i have faith that my child is still a wonderful blessing and a miracle and you know what great things are still possible right yeah that going back to the I kind of just wish everything would be normal. I think that's something that a lot of families struggle with. And it's something that we hate that we struggle with, right? We hate that we feel that way. And yet we feel that way. And so when your kid is having a meltdown in the grocery store and all eyes are on you or all eyes are trying not to be on you, um, but you feel that and you're thinking, oh, can I not just run to the store for one quick thing and get out without having a massive meltdown because the tag is too itchy or because the lights are humming and he can hear it, but I can't, you know, whatever it is that's causing it. And, and we have great empathy for our child and we wish that we could take it away. But at the same time, it's so frustrating. And then we're frustrated that we're frustrated. Do you feel that way sometimes? Yes. And another thing that's also very challenging as a special needs parent is to First of all, as, as a teacher, what I always tell myself and my wife and I always discuss is when your students are pushing your buttons and challenging you and in your face, one of the first things you have to do is to not take it personally. And remember, this is not about you. Many times these kids are reacting to something totally else. And in many cases, things or trauma, what have you, that you may not even know about. In the same way, it is challenging to not want to get angry at your child sometimes because for the hundredth time you've told them, mm. please don't hit the TV. Please don't pull that sharp or dangerous object down from the shelf. Please don't, you know, hit the dog that way or, you know, grab your sibling in that way, whatever the case is. And again, it's, it's an issue with us understanding how our kids work. We know that they process differently. We know that they filter in information and whatever um, stimulus they're getting differently. But at the same time, you have a frustration as a parent to say, well, I don't know what else to do. Right. I've, ex I've told them, I've tried some different things. I've, arrange the environment differently or maybe taken them out of the environment, but still we're having an issue. And that for me, I will confess, is one of the most challenging and most difficult things that I still struggle with. Those times when maybe I've had a bad day or I'm too tired 
And then my child does something that pushes me over the edge. And then I start to get angry at them. And that's where I have to stop right. myself and really remove myself from the situation as much as I can and say, you know what, this is not about him. It's about me. I need to cool down. I need to take a break, whatever I need to do just to recalibrate and then re-engage with that child and then fix whatever needs to be fixed. But again, our kids, you know, typical kids know how to push an adult's buttons and a special needs child knows it even more. But the struggle, of course, is to remember that in many cases, they don't know why they're doing it. They don't mean to do it. They're not intending to hurt anyone. This is also how they're experiencing the world as well. And so it's up to us as parents to take a break, calm down, back up and say, okay, let's try this again. I know I'm frustrated, but you know what? You're still my child and we're not going to turn this into a, a fit of rage on daddy's part. We're going to find a way to just fix the problem. Right. And that's hard. Um, one thing that we struggle with uh, because our son um, is verbal. And uh, to many people, you know, we, we've heard many times, oh, I wouldn't know that he has autism just to look at him. You know, he doesn't seem autistic on, you know, on the surface. So one thing that we kind of struggle with is, honestly, sometimes, not that we forget, but it's just, we think, okay, you're 13, you're acting this way, or you're talking in this way, and you really shouldn't be doing that as a 13-year-old. And part of us kind of thinks he should be able to figure this out by now. You know, he should be able to do this by now. And, and remembering that, that he struggles with that and that, and that sometimes he says things just because it's coming out of his mouth and, and he just can't control what he's saying. And we're working on that in therapy and things, but, you know, it still happens. And so to not get upset at that because it feels, it kind of feels quote unquote normal in the moment when he's saying something that could be perceived as back talking or being disrespectful when he's just talking out loud he's just trying to talk through it and process it out loud but to everybody else it will sound very different and something that is normally addressed you know and disciplined in some way you know there's some consequence or at least a talking to you or something like no you you can't say that you can't do this you know and it's it's very frustrating to to kind of feel like, okay, how are we still not, how are we still not there yet? But also remembering, okay, well, you know, remembering that he does have, he does struggle with these things. And it's just, it's hard. It's hard to constantly keep yourself in check and keep telling yourself he's working through this, you know, allow him space to work through this and not getting upset, you know, so quickly uh, or try not to get upset at all if we can help it. Right. Um, so tell me more about your passion for reaching dads and fathers. I know in the special needs world, there's a lot of moms out there, a lot of women advocates, which is great, and we need them. Um, but there's just not a whole lot of, of males speaking truth into other fathers and dads' lives. So tell us about your passion for reaching other dads. Sure, absolutely. And I definitely want to echo your sentiments regarding the women and the moms out there, uh, starting with my own and, of course, yourself and, and all of the other ones that, that we can all name. Women and moms need to be championed. But what I have seen in my experience is that special needs fathers are both underserved and under-resourced. And what I mean by that is many times when you get a diagnosis, it kind of is almost a pattern that, and I will actually speak to it 
even for myself, when we first got the diagnosis, how challenging it was for me to find exactly what my niche was. But many times moms are the one who take the initiative. And in the case of our marriage, for example, my wife is absolutely a, a type A leader and is focused and is organized. And when these things first started to come into our space, she just took off and she just did her thing. And on the one hand, that's that's great. But on the other hand, it's both intimidating for the man and for myself in the father role to sometimes really know, okay, what is my place? And it's not always as easy as saying, honey, what do you need in terms of help? That that can be a great starter. But a lot of times men feel out of place because they may not understand their child's diagnosis. They may not feel comfortable with where their child is or even where their child is going in terms of development. You know, I talk to special needs dads and, you know, part of the issue is you have an expectation for your kids. Moms do as well. But in the case of, say, like my son, for example, um, it would be great for me to think that, wow, when my child is seven, eight or nine, you know, we'll go do daddy son softball together or soccer or I'll just go play basketball with him in the park. Those things may not happen. And in the case of our child, it didn't. He does have a liking for some things that daddy likes, which is great, but we can't share them in the same ways. And so the issue that I see is that dads and men in general have a hard time communicating these experiences and these feelings uh, just in a typical sense. But then also, too, when you have a special needs diagnosis, it just complicates things even further. And in many ways, you actually see dads and men pulling out of those situations because they don't understand the situation. They don't know how to help or it may just be too overwhelming for them and they don't know what to think. So. There's a reason why the divorce numbers are so high with special needs families. The numbers have changed over the years, so I'm not going to quote you anything because quite honestly, I'm not sure myself, but I know that they are very high and within several years after diagnosis, they become even higher. Um, so the, the issue is that men need to realize their place. Their place is one that is so needed in terms of the relationship that a father has with their child, son, daughter, doesn't matter. And they have certain gifts and talents. And for myself, for example, I know that speaking as a man and as someone who, for example, one default with being a man is that you're the breadwinner. You're the one who makes the money. And therefore, if there's a bill that comes in medically or therapy wise, well, you just write the check. In my case, I can't do that. I am actually not, believe it or not, I'm not the breadwinner in my family. My wife has always made more money than me just because that's how it worked out. I don't have an issue with that. But what happens is that as these things play out in your marriage, you see that some resentment sometimes comes in in terms of who's making more, who's covering more, who's doing these things. So men need to identify, first of all, what their role is. And I begin with that men are the spiritual foundation of their family. They are the ones who should be above all else leading their families in terms of where they are at in terms of their faith, their beliefs, um, connecting as a family on an emotional level. Yes, I'm saying that, guys, emotionally. Uh, being the one who's there to support their spouse in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, Obviously, monetarily is one, but it is not the only one, and it doesn't have to be the primary one. In my case, I spend a lot of time with my family talking about you know, where they're at in terms of their faith, you know, doing Bible readings with my son at the end of the night, having those kinds of conversations with my wife, you know, praying, trying to be in prayer as much as possible. And again, we're all busy. We do the best we can. But then just making sure that I'm that rock and that when my wife comes to me and has an issue and that issue is something where um, she's having trouble processing or she's breaking down or emotionally something might be too much. I'm the one that's there for her. I'm the one that says, you know what, let's talk about this. Let's talk it out. I'm your comfort. 
I'm, I'm your strength. Ultimately, God is that for both of us, but I'm the one that needs to demonstrate that in our marriage and in our family. Right. And I think there are a lot of guys that do that well, but there are a lot of men that struggle because I think they forget their purpose and they forget how important their role is in the life of their family and specifically with their child, which they may not have an easy time connecting with after a diagnosis, mm-hmm. but it is still so needed and so required. And that's why I like to give back in that way. So, John, you mentioned that dads have a harder time kind of dealing with diagnosis, emotionally connecting. Um, and I feel like there's a big part of that, at least from what I've from what I've heard between, you know, the differences between the way moms handle things versus the way dads handle things. You know, men in general are kind of fix it kind of people. You know, if there's a problem, they want to fix it. And um, I think women have the same kind of thing. but they may have a little bit more emotions that go into it. Um, I know for, for us, when Sam was diagnosed, I jumped into research um, because I guess originally my thought was, okay, well, what do we do to, to fix it? And I dived into research and trying to figure out, okay, what do we need to do um, to help and getting all the therapy set up and everything. Um, but for a dad, an autism diagnosis, we know that you know, autism is a, is a lifelong thing. Um, in most cases, there's, there, there's not going to be a, you know, one day it just magically disappears kind of a thing. And so for a dad who wants to fix something that seems unfixable, can you speak to that aspect for dads and what other men might be going through as they struggle with trying to figure out how do I live in this new life in this way with a son that I can't, or a daughter, whom I can't, quote, fix their their problems. Can you speak to that? Sure. Well, I think what I would start out by saying is, yes, it's true. You can't fix them. It's actually not your job to fix them. Because what you have to start out with understanding is your child is your child. Your child is a gift no matter what. You may want your child to be healthy, and I get that. And we will do anything that we can to find the doctors, the therapists, the specialists to help support that, as myself and my wife have done. However, at the end of the day, if I can't somehow turn my child into something that I would define as quote unquote normal, that still doesn't diminish the relationship I have with my child. He will always be my son. I will always love him no matter what. And so While men, I think, yes, are fixers, and that's a wonderful quality, and that really stems from a desire to support and shelter and kind of take care of the family, at at the same time, what happens is that I think men's emotional state works on them in a different way. And so, therefore, when they realize that after the first you know, two or three times of trying whatever, it's not getting better, it's not getting fixed, or it's not what they expect, then, okay, then this is just not happening. Now, granted, I think there are some wonderful dads out there, and we both know plenty of them who keep trying different things. We've certainly kept trying uh, a bunch of different um, treatment options. Uh, But we also have an understanding that at the end of the day, this is still going to be my child, no matter what it looks like. He is still a gift to us. And truthfully, as my wife and I discuss all the time, had he not had this disability, there are a lot of wonderful things that truthfully would not have happened to us. As much as we don't like to hear that or face that, the fact is is that we've been able to experience some wonderful things, some wonderful relationships and families and friends and experiences that we would not have had otherwise. 
And so the way that I process it and the way that I communicate that to dads is to say, listen, you are more than just the fix it man. You might be the guy that your wife gives the honey do list to and says, fix the plumbing, fix the gutters, fix the roof, fix this, fix that. At the end of the day, though, being a parent and being a parent to a special needs child is being much more than just a fix it man. You are asked to be that child's father and love them unconditionally. And I think a lot of dads do, but sometimes dads may forget how to do that or feel that it somehow needs to look different or be different. You still need to be a parent to that child. In in the case of that I gave, for example, of um, dads having to deal with the frustration of these milestones, like I can't take my child to the park to play. Well, yes, you can. You know, your child may not play soccer with the soccer team that the other kids are on. That doesn't mean you still can't kick a ball around with them. My son, as it turns out, seems to like basketball. He doesn't really tell me that because he can't, but I can see that by the way he gets excited when I have a game on and when I talk to him about it. So we took him to a basketball game. We have a basketball hoop out in the driveway that we actually got from a neighbor. I play with him. Most of the times it's, you know, me pushing the ball up into the basket while he's just kind of hanging on to it. But the look on his face is priceless because he's so excited and happy that he did something with daddy and daddy's happy and excited. And that is all of the gift I need. So what men I think need to identify here is, again, what is your true role? It's not to be the fix-it guy, ultimately. It's not to be the one who writes the big balloon check that, you know, will find some miracle doctor that'll fix it. If you can do that, great. But at the end of the day, you are still the father to that child. You are still a loving parent. and. If you struggle with that, also, I encourage you, as I do, because I actually have a, a dad support group that uh, for special needs and we meet monthly, you know, reach out to other guys, talk to them and bounce some ideas off as difficult as them as that might be for you. Even if they're not a special needs parent, find someone that you can bounce some of these things off of. That's another important thing. Men need to be able to process. It's not just for the ladies. They need someone to talk to, to sound off with whatever, you know, you're comfortable with. I get it's going to look a little differently, but at the end of the day, you still need to be able to process your feelings in that way. You can't keep them bottled up. Definitely do the self-care, but then at the same time, make sure that you're at least connecting with one or two other guys that that get you, that can be there for you and support you. Mm, I love that. Just the image of you helping him push the basketball into the goal. I just, that's such a beautiful picture of a, a fatherhood and being mm-hmm. present for your kid. You know, you just have to you have to show up, you know, you may not be able to fix it or, or, or make it better in whatever way you think that that would be, but you need to be there. We need to be there for our kids. So let me transition now into the faith aspect, which you started to go into in the beginning. Mm -hmm. How does faith play a part in your journey as a parent? Tell me more about the faith that you have and what is the special hope that you have in all of this? Sure. Well, for me, it begins and ends with faith. And and as I, I was kind of painting the picture in the beginning a little bit, um, I'm not here, and, and I get very deliberate when I say this. And when I say I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my faith, I don't just mean that I wouldn't be here on your show or I wouldn't be with my family or anything. I, I don't know where I would be, quite honestly, because it was my faith in God. It was my Christian faith. It was the relationship I developed with Christ and, and all of those things that helped really to give me a foundation that therefore I could pass on to my family and therefore we could carry through. Now, I realize that people who are listening to this might be coming from a lot of different places as it relates to that. You may be a, a very devout Christian family. You may be a, a surface 
Christian believing family, you may not be Christian at all. And you may think, well, does this have any place for me? Well, what I can only communicate to you is my experience, which is this. Faith is the engine. It's the lifeblood. It's what propels me on every day to get up and want to be a great parent and be a great husband. Without that, and really without the, the promises that were given to me, because when we first went through our trials, and, and to be quite honest, our, our trials were, were quite severe and to the point where, um, as I communicated in um, one of the workshops I just did, you know, I did have a couple of suicide notes written. I'm not going to um, dance around that. I mean, it, it had gotten to that point. Mm. And the promise was this. When God steps in and says, I can get you out of this, but you need to trust me. You need to listen. That's really what it came down for me. When, when I first started going to a Bible study and, and, deal, and working with men um, who are on that level, that's really what kept coming to me. This is not going to get fixed overnight. And that's the other thing. Faith, faith takes muscle. Faith takes some fortitude. It doesn't just mean it, you, know, you snap your fingers and it's changed. What it does mean is that God will be with you. He'll walk with you. He'll take you step by step. And I noticed that slowly things began to move and change. And then my wife is curious, and then she asks questions, and then we start going to church, and then other things kind of fall into place in terms of a better school, new job, better job, all of those things. So again, it, it's not always about, okay, I'm going to commit my life to God in this way or be faithful and now everything will be fixed. He will create whatever he needs to for you to be the best that you can be. In my case, I realize now what my calling is and what I have to do. My son's diagnosis might not ever change. That doesn't affect who I am as a parent or as a person and what I know I can do to affect positively my child's life, my family, and also the people around me. And so when I define faith and what it is, I really talk about it in two ways. The first way I say is that it's like a muscle. Your faith is a muscle. You have to work it. What does that look like? It means that when you feel a calling from you know, your quiet time or your meditation or prayer time when something comes to you, you need to kind of act on those things. Faith is not just waiting for God to do something and you're sitting on the couch watching TV. It's, okay, I want to change my life. I want things to be different. I'm going to engage. I'm going to do all of those things that I know I can do in this moment to be a better husband or parent, while at the same time then surrendering and allowing God to kind of take over. So, on the one hand, it's it's engaging and working the muscle of faith. But on the other hand, then it's also knowing when to kind of take your foot off the gas pedal and say, okay, when I know it's time for God to work, I'm going to let that happen. Or when I see things coming into my space that I don't get, that I don't understand, something that's unexpected, I'm not just going to jump to a conclusion or say, okay, now everything's everything's over and this is all just, you know, kind of gone for nothing. No, it's not that. What it really is, is I need to have that same faith that got me to this place and know that God can get me to the next place. I'll tell you one very quick story to kind of illustrate this. Um, even in the middle of all of our struggles and how I kind of described when I was even to the point of being suicidal, you know, just a year later after all of that, um, and it was it was basically the, the summer after, we went to um, our first Johnny and Friends family retreat. And... One of the things that people really encouraged us was to take time as a family, take time as a couple. And so um, our son was off with a, with a one-on-one, and we just went down to the beach. It's right off of Lake Michigan, and they have a private beach there. And we just sat, and the beach was empty. And the comment that I made to my wife at that time, having gone through near divorce and job losses and almost the loss of our home and you know eventually having to move, but but for the right reasons, and all of these transitions, 
I just said to her, I said, you see, honey, God got us here. He got us to the beach here at Maranatha Retreat Center. And if he can get us here, maybe he can get us a little bit farther. So it's about celebrating those little victories. He was able to get us to that place, a place that I never thought was even possible. Was it our ultimate place or was it the place that we really want to be at in the end? No, but that's fine. I'm going to celebrate all those little victories and I'm going to keep engaging and I'm also going to keep listening and knowing when to let him take over, but then also when to know when it's my time and it's my responsibility to step up as that parent and father. Right. Celebrating the little victories is so important along the way and finding finding victories every day that you can celebrate. Um, that's that's truly beautiful, how God has gotten us this far. And no, it's not the picture that we had in our minds the day they were born. It's by far not even close to the picture that we had in our minds. But I think in a lot of ways, it's just so much better. It's something better that we could have ever imagined. You know, the the blessings that we experience with our children and just the beauty of life that they that they show us that they give us i think it's just it's incredible so thank you so much for sharing your story um you can find john online he is on facebook uh he has a page called john's special needs blog so it's facebook.com slash john's special needs blog uh, he's also on twitter at jfellageller 74 and that is j f e l a g e l l e r Seven four, and he's on Instagram as well at jfellageller. So, uh, John, thank you so much for joining the show today. Um, I'm hoping we can get together again and talk through some more of these things. You brought up so many fantastic points, especially about marriage and the struggling, uh, the struggles that couples have in, in keeping their marriages together and, and holding fast through the storms of of life and special needs and all of those things. So, uh, thanks so much for joining us. And I hope to see you again soon. We'll be seeing you in April. So I'm super excited about that. Yes, as I am as well. No doubt about it. That'll be fun. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, John. Great. Thank you, Sarah. If you'd like to connect with John, you can find him on social media on his Facebook page at facebook.com slash John's Special Needs blog. You can also find him on Twitter at jfellageller74 and on Instagram at jfellageller. Don't forget to check out his writing on Key Ministries Special Needs Parenting blog at keyministry.org. Look under the Blogs tab for the Special Needs Parenting blog. All of these links will be made available in today's show notes, so please check those out. I'm your host, Sarah Brody, and this is A Special Hope. You can find our website at hopeinautism.com slash podcast. Also on our Facebook page as A Special Hope Podcast. And my Twitter handle is at A Special Hope Pod. You can also email me at A Special Hope Podcast at hopeandautism.com. I'd love to connect with you on social media and hear your comments. And I know John would love to connect with you too. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.